Welcome to Phoenix Bible Church. If you're new, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here, and we're glad you're here today. Uh, we're glad you're here to worship Jesus as we just did through song and, and to look at his word. We believe that God's word uh, is powerful. It doesn't return void. And so we're excited to hear from, uh, from God in the next few moments together. Um, if you uh, don't know, Pastor Rick Eford uh, is here to speak to us this morning. And Pastor Rick is a friend. Uh, you may have remembered him from around December. He preached our last service at Grace Lutheran Church. So if you're new, we're about 10 months old as a church. We started out uh, without a home, without a place to meet and gather for worship. We scrapped together and, and tried really hard, really quickly to find a place. We were able to do that just up the street at Grace Lutheran Church in the evening. And um, by God's grace, we were able to find this place in January and kind of have our grand opening as a church in January. And so uh, Rick preached our last service at Grace Lutheran in December. And so if you were here, you, you were blessed by that, and we're excited to have him again. Um, Rick has been the pastor of Desert Springs Bible Church for 30 years. Uh, he's on the board at Phoenix Seminary. He's been married to his sweet wife, Emily, for 42 years, and they have two sons. He is a scratch golfer. He asked me to say that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he, he is a good golfer from what I hear. Uh, Rick is a friend. Rick is a, a mentor to me. He has uh, been helpful in more ways than he realizes, definitely in more ways that you even realize. He's impacted you uh, through your pastor and through me. And so um, their church has helped us financially as a new church getting off the ground. Their church has come alongside in that way. Uh, at the beginning of this thing, we didn't have insurance. And I was, we were having our third child not a good time not to have insurance. And uh, Rick just came along and said, man, we want to help with that. We want to make sure that your family has that. They've come alongside us in other ways, too. In fact, the other day, uh, I just got off the phone with Rick, and he was really helpful in a, in a situation in the life of our church and in my life. And I got off the phone, and I shared that with my wife. And she just said, she responded, she just said, what would we do without Rick? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. Uh, he's been very influential in my life, in our church's life, and so we're glad to have you this morning, Rick. And uh, would you guys welcome Rick with me? Wow, what an introduction. You know, I don't know how to take that. I was the last person to speak. Did they run you out of there after I spoke the last time? Is that what the deal was? Well, I certainly hope that's not going to be the case here today. And you know what, Tim? You shouldn't lie as a pastor. I mean, most people think we pastors lie through our teeth all the time. Don't reinforce that dude by telling him I'm a scratch golfer. The close I get is doing this, and you know, when I make a bad shot, and is that what scratch golfer means? I think so, whatever. Hey, it, seriously, all kidding aside, it is, it's such an honor and a delight to be with you all this morning. I have looked forward to this. I circled on the calendar, and it started out this way. Tim said, hey, can you come and talk to our, to our leadership group? We want to talk about shepherding and pastoring. I said, man, I'd love that. Absolutely love it. He says, well, since you're going to be here, can you preach on Sunday too? And I said, I'd love to do that too, because I'm planning on being here. The whole plan for Emily and me was to be here and worship with you all and then roll over into that. You have no idea how highly we think of you at Desert Springs Bible Church, your brothers and sisters just a little bit north of here, how we pray for you. Just last week in our service, there were pictures of you coming in and out of this building and praising God for this on a, on a video that we did with our people just to try to keep 
uh, you in mind and in their minds and in their prayers. So thank you so much, Tim, and thanks, Phoenix Bible Church, for the pleasure of being here. I, uh, I'm truly honored and appreciative to be with you this morning. You know, when I was a kid growing up in North Carolina, my dad one day was telling me about something, and it just it sort of rocked my world. I didn't understand it. I couldn't wrap my brain around it. And that was that the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, had been going through some financial troubles, and there was a guy, that a wealthy businessman in the community, and he knew that they had a need for traffic control and other types of things of a helicopter. And so he decided he would buy a helicopter for the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, and give it to them gratis. No, no strings attached, no cost. Maybe it was to pull a big banner with his business behind it. I don't know. Maybe it was a pain on the... I don't think that was the case. I just think it was basically no strings attached, and the city of Charlotte would not accept it. I was going, what? Seriously? A free helicopter? you got to be kidding me. Why would you not take it? And then my dad explained to me it's because they're going through financial problems. And honestly, if they take it, they can't afford the pilot. They can't afford the insurance. They can't afford the maintenance. They can't afford. And so they said, no, thank you. Wow, how often do we sit, turn away a free gift? Well, you know, I didn't come this morning to talk to you about helicopters. I came to talk to you about Jesus. But I want you to know, you've probably heard this if you've been here at all. I know you've heard it, and perhaps someplace else, whether this is your first Sunday here or not. To have a personal relationship with God is a free gift that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's free. I'll bet you've heard that somewhere before. It's not our works. It's free. But I also want to tell you, I believe that. I also know that to follow Jesus is going to cost you a lot. To follow Jesus, to be his disciple, to be his follower, will cost you. It's a free gift, but it will cost you. And because of that, some people have said, no, thank you. And others have embraced it. There was a young woman that I had the opportunity to work with when I was doing student ministries like 150 years ago. Different church here in the valley. And she was so excited. She came to know Jesus at Arizona State through, through Campus Crusade for Christ. And, and uh, she was so stoked about that. She wanted to get baptized. And she's telling all her friends and, and her family members. And she was expecting them to be excited as well until she got to one key loved family member, her grandmother, who absolutely was having none of it. She was appalled she just couldn't believe that this young woman would turn her back on her previous religious affiliation. To her, she was just throwing away everything she'd been taught and learned before. And there was a rift in the family. Tim is probably sort of like the, the young Muslim girl that you were talking about in Portland in your message last week, who came to know Jesus after reading the Word, and yet her mom and dad, even though they came to church, they weren't happy about it, at least initially. Jesus himself said, if you're going to follow me, look, if there's going to be a division. Sometimes it's going to divide marriages, and it's going to divide families, and it's going to divide kids, and it's going to divide relationships. When you come to Jesus and you have that relationship with him, I can promise you, it will cost you some other relationships. There's a cost associated with it. How do you and how would you encourage somebody? And maybe you're in that position yourself. Where do you find encouragement to be able to keep on going on when some of the people that have loved you the most and, 
have now turned against you and turned away from you, and now they become, in essence, your enemy. Where is encouragement to be found? Well, in the book of Thessalonians, the apostle Paul is writing to a group of people, as you've been studying, at a place in, in Asia Minor, in the Mediterranean area, in a town called Thessalonica. And he is writing to encourage them because they're experiencing some of what we've just talked about. A big part of what you're looking at is, is recorded in the book of Acts. And it's Acts 17, especially when Paul comes into town and he preaches the gospel and he goes into that city and he goes to the synagogue where many of the people would come and he begins to reason with the Jewish leadership and also with a lot of the Gentiles that were there. And he did that for a period of three weeks, three Sabbath days. And it said, and not a few of the devout Gentiles and the leading women of that community were coming to faith in Jesus. That's a part of what was happening. And it was not necessarily well received. So Paul begins to write this letter. And in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, as you heard read earlier, he reads these words of encouragement. And we also thank God concerning constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you as believers. Now pause there just for a minute. What's he doing? He's first thanking them for their spiritual identity in Christ, that they are new people, they are new believers in Jesus Christ. They have been born again to a living hope. And he's saying, I want to thank God that when the truth came to you, and the gospel's recorded in 1 Corinthians 15 and other places as two essential things. One, Christ died on the cross for your sins, and he was raised again from the dead. It's not based on your works or mine. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is not about religion. It is about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and putting our faith that we as sinners come before a holy God and the only way we could be standing right standing before him is when we acknowledge that God still loved us and he gave us his son Jesus who died on a cross. But that didn't end it. Three days later he was raised from the dead. He said, I thank God that when we came to you, when we presented that message, that you believed it, you received it. That word for received in the Greek language, and I don't spout a lot of Greek because I don't know a lot of Greek except for the little guy that runs a restaurant down in the corner. I do know him. But in this case, that Greek word means to welcome into someone's home. It means to open the door and to greet them enthusiastically to welcome them in. He said, you heard it, you believed it, and you welcomed it. Now, that was a work of the Spirit of God. You welcomed it as these are words from God, not words from a man. No matter who good that man is, no matter what credentials he may bring, we're hearing first from God. Tim said that a few minutes ago, and I so appreciate it. It doesn't matter whether Tim stands in this pulpit, or I do, or Zach a couple of weeks ago, and I think Zach is next week, or who it is that's here Come not to hear from a person, not about a personality. Come to hear from the Word of God. Come praying for whoever stands here that God will fill their mind and their heart and their mouth and that he will also give to us a receptivity to know him and to understand him and to live for him. He's saying, I thank God that you did that. And it's a beautiful thing. In John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says this. Jesus came into the world and his own 
rejected him. But to those who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. It is more than an intellectual belief. It's more than just an intellectual assent. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe he really lived. Yes, I believe he was a good guy. Yes, I believe he was a good teacher. Yes, I'm spiritual. Yes, I believe God and Jesus. How many times do we hear people say those types of things? It's more than an intellectual assent to the historicity of Jesus Christ. He said to those who believed and who received who welcomed it in. This is a gift. I could stand here offering you a gift for as long as could be, and whatever, how expensive and exquisite that gift may be, it still remains mine until what happens? You take it. You receive it. And there's that transference. And that transference, God's offer is legitimate, but that transference happens by faith. And what Paul is saying to these people, I'm thank God, you came and you heard it, and you believed it, and you received it. You welcomed it in. And you're a changed person. It doesn't always happen that way. Uh, Emily and I have some friends that we met a number of years ago, and I just love them deeply. They have been in our home. We have been in their home. We have been together. We've talked about a lot of different serious things. They have visited our church on a few occasions. The last time they were there was Easter a few years ago. And the message was, in essence, that Jesus is the resurrection. He's the life. He's the only way to the Father. It's not through a good life. And afterwards, I remember talking with them, and they said, you know, we love you. We just don't believe the same as you. And part of the issue, they're really, really good people. Quite candidly, they are gooder people than most people I know in church. And that gets in the way. Because they look at people in church, and they think, if that person's a Christian, if that man, if that woman, then I'm more honest than them. I'm more compassionate than they are. And that gets in the way. They haven't received it. They're glad for us. They're thankful for us. They turn to us for prayer. So when there's an issue in their family, would you pray for me? You're better connected to the big guy would be a statement that would be made. The Spirit of God has not worked in their life yet. I'm still praying that he will. He will use us. There's another guy I want to tell you about, Jim. This was, this was awesome. I, I just love telling this story because I love remind, being reminded of it. Uh, there was a, a woman in our church who was a hairdresser, and she cut this guy's hair. And he would come, and like a lot of times, you know, your hairdresser, your stylist is a lot like your bartender, like your confidant. You know, they, they listen and they get paid to be there and do other stuff, but they'll listen to you, and listening is in big supply and short demand, or big demand and short supply. And so, anyway, his name was Jim, and he came and he would talk about his marriage and talk about his marriage and talk about his marriage. He said, Look, you need to go talk with my pastor. Now, he comes out of a different religious tradition. He wanted nothing to do with this pastor of hers. And yet, he started hurting so bad that he, I would, the way we would put it in recovery program, he got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And he was just sick and tired of what was going on. So he was so desperate. He said, well, give me the number. And he called me. We walked through the door, and he comes through the door to my office. And I, hi, Jim. I'm Rick. I'm Jim. And da 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 da, da. And he said, I, I'm here to talk about my marriage. I don't want to talk about being born again. I said, whoa, okay. That's why I thought you were here. I, I, you know, I understood. We're going to talk about your marriage. That's cool. Yes, I do. We'll talk about my marriage. You don't want to talk about being born again. I said, okay, I got that. Time out. Let's go. 
And so we started talking about his marriage and did for about an hour, and there was, it was, there was some issues. And so at the end of that, I said, you know, Jim, that's about all I got uh, for today. I'd, I'd love to help you more, but probably it'd be best if I could talk with your wife or talk with the two of you together, and if you guys want help, maybe, I could, maybe God could use me to help you. And so anyway, he said, okay, that's good. And then he says, you know, before I go, I just got one question. I said, sure. He said, what's it mean to be born again? <laughs> and I went, seriously? I thought you didn't want to talk about that. He said, well, I don't. But what does it mean? And so I said, well, the best way for me to show you that is to show you in the Bible where it comes from. May I do that? He said, sure. So I went over to my desk. I took off the Bible and opened it up to John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking to a very religious guy, Nicodemus. He, boy, you want to talk about pedigrees. He was like there. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, it's not good enough. All the stuff that you've done in the flesh is not good enough. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born spiritually. It's not about your good works. Oh, that's what that means? I said, yeah, that's what it means. And he left. And about three weeks later, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And about a month after that, he was baptized to demonstrate and to proclaim his profession of faith and his identity with Jesus. Got involved with a, a Bible study through the time of his promise keeper studies that were going on, a lot of other stuff. He got involved in that study and, and has continued to grow in the faith. And I thank God when I think of Jim. It brings a smile to my face. Just like it did to the Apostle Paul's when he says these, he's writing these people, look, when I think of you, it brings a smile to my face in essence. I thank God for you that when we proclaim the truth, you heard it, you believed it, you received it. He goes on to say, though, not just for your faith, but for your fruitfulness. Notice what it says in the next verses. The belief is like the root, and now he's going to talk about here's the fruit. Here's what that belief internally has produced in your life. Verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Now let's hit the pause button there for a second. Basically, you remember I said how the gospel had come in, and Tim has talked with you about this. When the gospel came into Thessalonica, some received it, some believed, some became followers of Jesus. That did not make everybody else happy. Matter of fact, there were people that came to government city officials, and they began to say, and you can see this in Acts 17, they began to say, what these people, they're preaching something. They're teaching something that's going to bring Rome down on us. They are preaching that Jesus is king, not Caesar. Now, did they ever say that? Yeah, they said Jesus is king, but not these other things. So they began to put words in their mouth. And they said, we're going to have a big trouble if we allow these people to continue to do this. So they made it a political issue. And they created a, stir, a, stir, a, a turmoil, stirred everybody up. And so basically, this is the passage where it says, they, these people have come, and, and what they're proclaiming, what they're teaching is turning the world upside down. 
Now, some of us that know Jesus would argue it was turning the world right side up. But from their perspective, everything was on its head. And they were about to lose their way of life. So riots began to break out. They even came to one house, the household of Jason, where evidently the church had been meeting. Paul was there when he was in town, when he was not at the synagogue. And, and they dragged Jason out and take him before the court officials. And they basically said, take a security for him. They find him pending trial. Here are individuals who, because of their faith, are being imprisoned. And they're being fined. And they're being persecuted. When he talks about their fruitfulness, there's a lot of places that he could go with fruitfulness. When you read the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit is things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Those are not the fruit that he chooses to speak of here as evidence of their faith in Jesus. The fruit that he chooses to say is you are demonstrating your faith by your willingness to suffer persecution from those that don't know Jesus yet. From those that misunderstand you and misunderstand him or who are absolutely against him and everything that he stands for. And you have chosen by faith to identify with Jesus so much so that you will choose identifying with Jesus even if it means being rejected by others. Just like the Jews did in Judea He's saying, you are imitating. You have become imitators. How does a child learn best? By telling them what to do? No, a child learns best by watching and looking and observing and imitating. If that's true spiritually, if that's true physically, if that's true emotionally, if that's true sociologically, is it not also true spiritually? And he's saying, you have become imitators as children of God you are now also demonstrating that by imitating your brothers and sisters who were in the Jerusalem area in Judea who were also rejected. And the people that were there killed the prophets long before Jesus. And then when Jesus comes along, they killed Jesus. And now you're dealing with some of the same stuff at the hand of your countrymen that they had dealt with with theirs. I thank God that you have a strong enough faith to be willing to suffer this type of persecution. Now, when I said it's going to cost you something, identification with Jesus, Jesus in his day, and we as Christ followers today are swimming upstream. We're in a culture that is not just contrary, but oftentimes is directly opposed to Jesus and to what he wants to be. He wants us to be and the light that he wants us to be in the darkness. And that comes with the cost. That's what we're talking about. The scriptures speak to that in many different places. Let me just give you an example. You saw that in Acts 17, how Jason was persecuted. Well, Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, blessed, how completely happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not being persecuted for being stupid. Not being persecuted for being obstinate, not being persecuted for being uncouth and un not having tact and not having diplomacy and not having any of those types of things for the sake of standing for Jesus. Sometimes we confuse those two things. Tim, you talked about, I think, with some of the Facebook posts that are out there. I want to take a stand for Jesus. 
And frankly, some of the stuff that we say we're taking a stand for Jesus, we're pounding the pulpit really hard, but there's not a lot of substance to our thinking. It has the appearance of standing for Jesus, but actually we're just being mean. We're being cruel. We're not willing to listen. We're not willing to dialogue. Never compromise the truth, but Jesus was full of grace and truth. Both go together. But Jesus said, look, you can live even like I lived, full of grace and truth, and suffer persecution. Blessed are those, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not only did Jesus say that, Peter said it. Two different places, 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 4. If you suffer for doing good, don't be afraid. You will be blessed, chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 4, don't be surprised when this happens. It happened to the prophets before you. It happened to Jesus before you. If you were a Jesus follower, who are you to think that it's not going to happen to you? By all means, if you are persecuted, do it for doing right, not for doing wrong. And rejoice to share Christ's sufferings. The Apostle Paul, in a different passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, Paul talks about his own persecutions, and he says this, All who seek to live a life, a godly life in Christ Jesus, all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Mark it down. It will happen in some form or another. Now, sometimes I, I'm interested and curious to hear people in our culture talk about what that looks like. A lot of times I hear when there's a, a court decision, okay, we're suffering as evangelicals, we're being persecuted, and there's some truth to that because we're contrary to the culture. Right now in Oklahoma, the latest thing, the Supreme Court in Oklahoma is wanting to take Ten Commandments off the state capitol, and it's been there for, I don't know, 100 years or so, long time. Why? Because the church should not be supported. Any religious group should not be supported by the government. That's the mindset. I'm not trying to make a political statement on that. I'm just saying that's a big place where oftentimes Christians come and say, wait a minute, we're being persecuted for our faith. Don't you realize that there's a statue of Moses in the Library of Congress? Perhaps the best research library in the world? And he's holding the Ten Commandments and there's courtrooms all over. And why can you pick on this? And you're picking on us as Christians or at least our Judeo-Christian heritage. But also Christians complain as they were being persecuted because we can't pray in public schools and public places anymore. Can I say, I'm more concerned about the lack of prayer in the churches than I am in the community. You want to see the smallest group? Say it's a prayer meeting and see how many people show up, especially if there's no food. <laughs> Do you get my point? We complain the enemy, we're being persecuted and this and that and the other. And, and truthfully, I believe that we as evangelicals are being persecuted, but I think we, in a sense we should rejoice because we are standing across stream and across current. Do it with grace, but stand in faith. He's saying, I rejoice that you've done that. By the way, let me just say this. Your motto or statement, I see on the website, I saw it out there when I came in here, I see it a bunch of places. 
What is it? Love Jesus? Live for Jesus? Lead others to Jesus? I love the simplicity. I love the progression of that. You can love Jesus all you want to, and you're going to be a safe person for people to be around. They'll say, that's great. If that's good for you, yeah, knock yourself out. You're good. We're inclusive. When you start living for Jesus, even your presence, if you don't say something and you live differently, will start getting some people's hackles up. And when you start to lead someone to Jesus, watch out. Now, I'm not saying don't do any of these because it will probably entail some persecution. I'm saying, by all means, do it. But do it in the wisdom and do it in the grace and do it in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when I hear us in the U.S. complain about these types of things, I will say that is the trajectory. I personally believe I will live to see a time when it's probably going to come through our tax codes where churches, there will no longer be a tax deduction for charitable contributions to a church or house of worship because how can the government subsidize religion? Tim, I think pastors will lose our housing allowance, which is that tax deduction where a portion of our salary can be directed toward housing that's not taxed. I believe these are some of the ways that we will see that happen. The question is, what difference will it make in our lives? Will it cause us to run and tuck our tail between our legs, or are we going to take a strong stand and say, that's not why I was doing this anyway? I'm doing it because I love Jesus. I'm doing it because I want more people to know Jesus, regardless of what happens, but that's the trajectory. A couple of summers ago, Emily and I were coming back from a building project with a group from our church in Uganda, working to build some homes for orphans over there, phenomenal ministry, and we stopped to be with some of our missionaries in France, and as I stepped, sat on the balcony with this, uh, this missionary, we're looking up at the Alps, this incredible view. But he said, you know, France is truly, officially, a secular country. Anything we want to do as a church, if we want to go on a retreat, we have to fill out an itinerary and submit it to the government officials. We still can do it, but we have to let them know what we're doing through the whole time. We're not there yet, are we, as a country? There's more persecution governmentally. They're not being imprisoned, but you know they tell them you can't do good. You can't do acts of benevolence. And by the way, I read some things years ago that that's one of the things that happened in Russia. And that was they didn't really outlaw religion. What they outlawed in Russia was the ability of the church to do works of kindness and service and benevolence. And the church then became irrelevant in the minds of the people. Do you see how insidious that is? How subtle? The same thing is happening in France. I think in terms of persecution, more like there's a pastor from China that I had the privilege to meet a number of years ago through a friend who was at the time president for Food the Hungry. And here was a man, Brother Xu, it's a fictitious name, but he was a leader in the underground church movement. As we listened to him talk about what those Chinese pastors had to go through, I sat there thinking, I'm not sure I'd be there. People whose feet were beaten so badly that they couldn't walk, and as soon as they could stub out of that prison cell, they were out preaching the gospel again. I've heard the same thing about pastors in India. I've heard of churches in India that are being burned down. And as the church is burned down, they build it back. And every time they burn it down and build it back, you know what happens? More people come to know Jesus because they see the faith. 
I was teaching in Russia in the early 90s. had the privilege of being a part of a Bible college there. started out as St. James Bible College and became through Campus Crusade for Christ Initiative uh, and Influence called uh, International Leadership Academies. And we're going through the gospel in one of those classes and we're talking about the presence of persecution in the first century. And one of the students asked me a question I wasn't really prepared for. Because we had said, you know, when you look in the book of Acts, you see the greater the heat, the greater the expansion, the more they were persecuted, the more the gospel went out. He said, well, if that is true, should we pray for persecution? How would you answer that? I don't think we should pray for persecution, but I think we should have the our eye on the ball for the bigger thing, and that is if that comes, let's not bellyache and moan and complain, and there's some few other words I'd like to throw in there, but this is church. <laughs> let's focus on what we can do. Let's focus on what we should do, and let's pray that whatever we go through will point people to Jesus. Let's focus on the ball. Keep your eyes. Focus on the big thing, the main thing not the inconvenience. Paul looks at these people and he's praising God for them and for all of this. And then he wants to encourage them in a different way and he wants to remind them. Oh, let me, I just about skipped something here. Notice there's a sort of a cryptic statement at the end of this. He said, they drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. The way that they oppose all mankind according to this is by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles how they might be saved. So that's the downside of the lack of freedom of speech to proclaim the gospel. And they're saying, really, they're not opposing us. They're opposing whom? God. That displeases God, that they oppose all mankind by hindering the speaking of the gospel so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, and most of the commentators I read don't exactly know what that means either, to be honest with you. It's a cryptic, vague thing. And I used to have a professor in seminary. Tim and I went to the same school, Dallas Seminary. Don't hold that against him, that he went the same place I did, all right? And he would say this with a difficult question. He said, hmm, due to the cryptic nature of the text and the paucity of information, I don't know. <laughs> so to fill up the measure of sins had something to do with God is keeping the books. God is keeping account. And he's only going to let them go so far before he steps in. They're not there yet, but God's being patient, and God is waiting, but God is not blind, and God is not impotent. God will step in. In essence, he goes on to say, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Now, I don't know exactly what that wrath is, but it's being held. And the whole book of 1 Thessalonians, you're going to get into this when you're thinking about last times over in chapter 5, verse 9. It says, God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a time and there is a place when God is going to speak and God is going to act. As Jesus came as the, as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, he will come again as the Lion of Judah, as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, as the conquering king. No person knows when that time is going to be. Only God himself, but he will act. That's why it tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we should not seek our own revenge. We need to live with all people. As far as it's possible, live with all people in peace. 
that presumes that there's some people you can't live in peace with. But we need to seek to do that. And it says, never seek your own revenge because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Understand you're not alone. If you're going through something difficult, God's the one that's keeping the books. You do not have to do the work of God in the flesh because it's probably going to be messed up. Let God do that. Then he goes on to say in verses 17 and following, But since we were torn away from your brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavor more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and you are our joy. He's encouraging them by saying, look, you're not alone. Even though I can't come, I can't be there, I want to be. Evidently, some of the people that were his opponents had said, look, Paul just came to town, blew into town, dumped his goods, took off. He doesn't really care about you. And so those are some of the lies and the distortions that were being used against him. Paul is saying, I want to set the record straight. You are my joy. You are my crown. You are my glory. You are my spiritual children. I love you. And you bring a smile to my face, and you bring a smile to God's face. I know that there's no babies that have ever been born here at Phoenix Bible Church. Uh, unless you're a guest today, you probably know that Tim and Jaya had a little one who's with them today, two months old. What a beautiful gift from God. Okay, have you ever heard anything, ever heard Tim or Jaya speak of this little one? Yeah, I bet you have. bet you heard Zach talk about the little one that came to their house three months ago too. You know, who is our pride? Who is our joy? It's our children. And even the slightest things that we do with the giftedness that we do, it gets put on the refrigerator. It gets posted on Facebook. Yeah, but that's so cute. Look at this, right? This is my, my son. My daughter is the next Picasso. So you get the point. Whatever we give, if they're our kids, brings a smile to our face. But it's not just that. Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, talks about the importance of yielding our gifts and talents to God. And on the ninth day, he says this, what, bring, what makes God smile? And he talks about how we yield whatever we have to him. It brings a smile to God's face. But he also said, but it's not just that. Honestly, when my kids were small, I would walk into their room while they were sleeping, and my heart would fill with pride and thankfulness and with joy to God. Looking at them sleep, not because of what they've done, but why? Because of who they are. I think Paul is trying to encourage them and encourage us to say, look, you are my joy. You are my crown. You are my child. And it also, you bring a smile to God's face because you're his child. And whatever effort you take in his power gives a smile to him. And even when you aren't having the faith to do that, just being who you are brings him great joy. I want to close this morning with this. A number of years ago, there was a young lady who had been attending our church, and I didn't really know a whole lot about her until she said, I want to become a member. I, I really like what I see here and want to become a member and want to start getting involved in the church and helping, and I've got some things I can do. And so when I sat down with her to talk about membership, uh, 
it became evident that there were some things in her life that we needed to try to help her with. She was a single mom. She had some small kids, but she was also living with a guy that was not her husband. And living with them meant they were sleeping together. They were living as husband and wife. And, and so I said, you know, I'm so thrilled you're here at the church. This is awesome that you're here. It's wonderful. I'm so glad. But, you know, before you sign a covenant with the church about you're going to live according to the truth of God's word and some other things like that, could, could we not get together and talk? And I tried to gently and graciously point out to her that the situation she was in for a lot of reasons was not the healthiest one for her and that God had given some direction that was contrary to her life. Uh, to say she was not happy with me would be like the understatement of the 21st century. And so I was very surprised when she came into church the next Sunday. Very surprised. We had a communion like you're going to have in just a moment here. And we just shared how God loves a person and gave his life and it's not by our works. And afterwards, she came up to me in the lobby and she had tears just streaming down her face. And she said, oh, Rick, oh, Rick, oh, Rick. I thought I was a Christian before, but now I know I am. Somehow the Spirit of God had even taken that confrontation and worked something in her heart to convict her of something that was there. And instead of running, she embraced it. She went home and told the guy that she was living with about her decision and that somehow they needed to change. Either they needed to get married or they needed to sprill up or they needed to for a season or he came to see me. He was also not very happy. Matter of fact, he told me I could go where I could go when it was not how to get to heaven. <laughs> and I have never seen him again. And she moved out. A single mom with a couple of small kids took a step of faith to follow Jesus. She lost a guy that she really believed that she loved and would be her next husband. And she lost some security, significant amount of financial security, but she did anyway. We had a group of people who came alongside her as far as a small group and helped her move and helped her get set up in a new apartment. And the church helped to pay for that apartment till she could get her feet under her. She came, not only came to faith in Christ, she began to follow him in a significant way. And you know what? When we trust God, oftentimes he will give us back what we've surrendered she met a young man some years later, not years later, about a year and a half later, and they fell in love, and they began to talk about getting married, and their relationship sexually and personally was pure and according to biblical principle, and he wanted to marry her. And she said to him, I will, but you have to ask Rick for my hand in marriage. <laughs> what a gracious thing. The child of the faith. You think that brings a smile to my face? And to know that just last week I met with her, and for the last 10 years, she's been working with single, unwed mothers through Young Life's ministry called Young Lives. What God did in her life, this work of grace, she turned around and began to invest in other people's lives. I want to tell you, you guys bring a smile to our face. What God is doing here, there are a lot more Vanitas in the world like that. There are a lot more gems that I talked about in the world like that. And you rub shoulders with many of them. And you may be one of those in this room this morning. Will you follow Jesus? It'll bring a smile to God's face. And regardless of what you have to give up, I can promise you it will bring a smile to your face, even though it may be through tears of joy. God bless you. Keep up the good work. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence here today.